There's a lot of rage pent up in our communities at present. People feel one way or another that things are not as they should be. They feel deprived of fairness and justice. Right or wrong, they're filled with wrath. It's funny that the same people who feel this way think that a just and righteous God is not a God of wrath himself. Welcome to the Bread of Life. I'm Joe Van Hoogen, the Director of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bible Teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn about our work to make Christ known among the nations, please go to traincpe.org. And to discover more about our radio ministry or our fellowship in Boise, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Romans 1.18 corrects this false notion of a docile God of love. Paul writes, The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Well, we're taking back up again our series in Romans. The last message that I presented to you was from Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And there we're told that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And that righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel works in such a way in the life of the individual who receives it or claims it that it carries them forward, you might say, from faith to faith. And what was being discussed here in the righteousness of God by Paul was in the gospel he's telling us that we have revealed to us the way in which a just God can justly forgive the unjust. How it is that a righteous God can righteously save those who are unrighteous. And so the righteousness of God that's referred to in verse 17 of Romans chapter 1 is a reference to the manner in which God's salvation comes to individuals and in no way compromises his own righteous character, but affirms it. God can only save us in a righteous way. God can only deliver us from our sins in a righteous way. And that's what has been accomplished, and that's what's being declared in the gospel. God has, in a sense, two choices for the sinner. The first choice is to utterly destroy them because of their sin. And the other choice is to save them and rescue them from their sins. But the only way that God can do this is in a way that comports with his own righteousness. The very way that God brings salvation must fully accord with his character. And as such, the Bible reveals to us that this idea of the righteousness of God and the salvation of God are linked together. And we showed that in our last message. We showed how David, when he had fallen to sin, he had actually orchestrated the murder of a man to hide his sin of committing adultery with that man's wife. How David then went to God and asked God to bring forgiveness to him. And how impossible is that? How can God forgive such an injustice? And yet, as David cries out and prays for it, he asks that God would save him righteously. David recognizes the only way that he can be saved is if God can find a way to righteously bring to him forgiveness and salvation. Later, David will rejoice in the salvation that God has brought to him. And you can read that in Psalm 65. There, David will again affirm the salvation of God and he will extol in the same breath the righteousness of God. God can only save in a righteous manner. So, God has a holy standard in which we have all sinned against. This standard has brought against us the sentence of death. That death is separation from that holy God and an impending, unending separation from him as well, eternal death. And yet God loves us and God would reconcile us to himself God would save us from a present and from a future without him, an endless future without him. 
But God would do this in a righteous way. And so God becomes a man. God lives in Jesus Christ a perfect, sinless life, manifesting the perfect laws and will of God for the life of all people. And then this sinless one goes and dies in our place. And he takes on himself our sin and its punishment so that all those who would rest in his offering for them and his sacrifice for them and the punishment he bore for them and fully trust in his salvation alone may through faith receive God's salvation. May through their trust in him, faith to faith receive his salvation. What it means is this. This is the only way you can be saved. You're not going to be saved from your sins by your own acts of righteousness. There's nothing that you can perform and do that somehow will shed the sin in your life and merit the response of God for forgiveness. It can only come if there has been a sacrifice made on your behalf. You will either have to make it yourself or one who is perfect and sinless can make it for you. But who could that be? It's Jesus Christ. It's the only way in which we can be saved. And this is revealed, it says, in the gospel. And the way it's revealed is this. When an individual puts his trust and faith in Jesus Christ at that moment, God brings to him a revelation of this righteous way of God. God fills them with a flood, overwhelming sense that they are forgiven. God begins to flood them with this overwhelming realization that the conscious witness of their sin that is born against them and cast in the shame has been lifted from them. And, you know, we don't forget our sins. We remember them, but we don't bear the weight of them anymore. They're removed from our life. They're not witnessing against us because we're forgiven and reconciled with God. And God brings to that individual a wave, the sense of being reconciled and brought into relationship with God. And it's a, it's a wonderful, energized, revelatory experience of salvation that comes to the believer and that the believer lives in. And oh, there are times when the enemy can come and our own sins and our own willfulness can cast a shadow over us for a moment. But oh, to remember, as Paul remembers in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. In the midst of his sin and his struggle against temptation, to remember that in Christ we're free from the condemnation of the law and we're forgiven and we're right before God and that is the gospel, and that is what is being revealed of the righteous way of God for our salvation. But here now, Paul says that the gospel that reveals the righteous way of God in saving us, Paul says also this same gospel reveals to us the wrath of God against sin. God's righteousness to save and God's wrath to judge are both revealed in the gospel. That's the main thing that we want to see in our message this morning. We're going to consider now today just this idea of the wrath of God. There are those, and this has been a popular notion for over 100 years, who are eager to suggest that this depiction of God as a God of wrath is an antiquated notion that died with the angry God of the Old Testament. That was just a notion that was put upon God or that men believed in a more primitive area in a more primitive time, but these would suggest that the concepts of God have progressed from this fear-mongering tribal God of the Old Testament to a God of love who's found in the New Testament. These individuals who have purported this idea have constructed in their minds an image of God that mirrors their own view of human evolving, progressing enlightenment from fear to enlightenment, from superstition to modern people of science and understanding. 
A wrathful God is in their minds an archaic remnant of a less enlightened time when human beings were afraid of a lot of things. They were afraid of the shadows that were cast by the branches and the trees and they were afraid of the times when the moon was not full and they were afraid when the times when the moon was full and they were afraid of the shadows as well that were cast by their fathers. And so in this situation they developed out of their fears these and projected these fears upon their idea of God but Today, we're told that we've risen above most of our fears. At least this was the popular notion until not too long ago. Seems as though we're casting back into paganism and back into those fears again. But there was a time we were told that we've risen above all those fears. We know better than to project those fears upon our notion of God. And, and because the evangelical has not wanted to be dismissed outright by those holding this enlightened view of and understanding what God is like, a number in the evangelical community began to avoid any mention of God's wrath and God's hatred of sin in their own teaching and in their own preaching and their own approach to how they discipled people and brought people to faith and discipled them in their faith. But the Bible is clear. God is not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. James tells us in his own writing, in his own book, that in God there is no shadow of turning. And listen, God is a God of wrath. You can't gloss over the account that we find in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 of God coming to judge the world and the world of men with a great flood in which after the judgment there's only one family, eight members that survived that great flood and all the rest are destroyed. And this is an Old Testament teaching but we have to remember that it's mentioned multiple times in the New Testament. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself referred to it as he used it to, for that great day of wrath, he used it to project the minds of those he was listening to to a further day of wrath that was yet to come. And that day he said, as in the days of Noah, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Another day of wrath is coming, he said. So you can't dismiss this idea of wrath as an Old Testament notion unless you say that Jesus himself is locked in this primitive state in this darkened state of primitive and fearful man. And in the same way, you can apply the same argument to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, in which two whole cities were destroyed and only one family was saved. Yet the Lord Jesus referred to Sodom and Gomorrah on more than one occasion, and he said that it would be worse than the day of judgment for Capernaum, the city that he came from and that heard him preach, than would be for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment, which also tells us that the great judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah didn't come when God rained fire and hail and brimstone down upon that city, but there's a day of judgment still coming for them, being held in lieu for them in the final day of great judgment. And we can go to the story of the, in the Old Testament of the rescue of the people of Israel from their bondage in Egypt, and we can read of the ten plagues that God sent down upon Egypt including the final plague, which was the destruction of all the firstborn of Egypt. And we can recount how the people of Israel were saved through the dividing of the waters in the Red Sea, but we can forget that those same waters came down falling upon the Egyptian army and destroyed them all. There's a depiction in the Old Testament of the wrath of God, and yet you'll find in the New Testament that account is referred to on more than one occasion as an illustration of the salvation that God is providing for us and what is made available as a saving power. Have to remember that the gospel accounts begin with one individual who comes upon the scene to proclaim the arrival of the Messiah, it's John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes proclaiming a message that is very akin to 
the messages of all the prophets of Israel because he's the last great prophet of Israel. He comes along and he begins to proclaim to the people that they are to repent and believe and they are to flee the wrath to come. The Pharisees hear about John the Baptist's message and how popular it is and the baptism that he is carrying out, which is a baptism calling upon the people to turn from their sin and to wash themselves from their sins. And the Pharisees come because they want to be in on this popular movement themselves and they want to be identified with the people. And when they show up before John, John turns to them and says this. You find it in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. He looks at the Pharisees that are arriving and he says, Oh, generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruit fit for repentance. Now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that brings not forth good fruit will be cut down and cast into fire. Indeed, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Those are, in a sense, some of the first words of the gospel accounts of the New Testament, and kind of sounds like wrath to me. Kind of sounds like wrath that's being projected here. Well, thank you for listening to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministry, let me suggest you go to one of two websites. Go to traincpe.org to learn more about the work we're doing all over the world to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Or to learn about our work in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, God bless you.